Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 37 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graven. I'm back. I didn't get permanently replaced last time by... Nope. Uh, the, um, by Chris Chris Cosman, who was a guest in the last episode. I'm Jamie Flinchball. Glad to have you back, Mark. Uh, it was a yeah. fun fun little detour, but um, you know, glad to be back here with you. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you could do it. I've had non-Jamie collaborators on episodes, so fair enough. I wasn't really uh, sore about that, but I'm, I'm glad you could do it. And we're going to share uh, kind of a Christmassy cocktail. We're going to talk about a place that serves a lot of Christmassy or holiday-ish beverages, or they've become associated with um, the holidays. That is uh, that is Starbucks. But I thought first we we could just cheers and and just say the name of your drink, and then we'll come back in a second to talk about some of the uh, the detail. Yeah. So I'm I'm drinking a hot butter bourbon, and I am drinking a bourbon flip. And like a bartender, it is very, very, very full. I'm surprised I didn't spill on the way in here. <laughs> mm. Well, cheers. Cheers. Happy holidays to everybody. So you watched the World Cup final earlier today. How was yes, that? Uh, yeah, it was It was probably the best World Cup final ever. Um, absolute classic, absolute pit thriller. And, uh, uh, you know, really enjoyed sitting down to watch it. It was it was a it was a long you know three weeks of the World Cup or four weeks, but uh, I you know as as it always is, and it's I definitely preferred in the summer as it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was it was one heck of a tournament and uh, a fantastic final. You might be surprised. Actually, I turned it on in the second half extra time. Am I like I'm yep. I'm saying that correctly, right? Yep. Extra time, then into overtime, right? Yeah, well, there's extra time. Extra time is is the uh, is is the extra thirty minutes they add after the ninety. Um, oh. Yeah, so, so stoppage stoppage time. Stoppage time is, is added to the end of sort of the regular playing time. So you'll have ninety minutes plus five, but then you'll sort of start at the ninety-first minute and extra right. time. So it's. It's really hard. You, know, you got to do some math to figure out how much total total playing time has, has gone on. So yeah, and then if there's a goal scored in stoppage time, that would be listed as being like 93 minutes in. But then if there was a goal three minutes into the extra period, that's also 93 minutes. No, it's 90 plus three 90 would be plus if three. it was in stoppage time, and then it'd be 93rd if it was in extra time. All right. So yep. I'm demonstrating how little I know about. Well, it's just how you keep score. I, I don't know how to keep a box score in a baseball game anymore. I used to, but um, when I was a kid. But uh, yeah, those are just those are just uh, minor details. In the end, you know, one team scores more than the other, and that's who wins. So uh, even if it takes penalty kicks, you know. Yeah, that was exciting. Um, I mean, you know, they they were debating if that one goal if they're offside, and they weren't explaining it like like you know to a newbie like me. They had like the graphic, and I'm still 
trying to get the hang of. I, I, I thought, like, is that guy too far ahead? And this is the, the least technical way of describing it. But Yeah, and he wasn't. There was, I think there was zero controversial calls. I think it was a very well-refereed match. Um, but, yeah, they kind of struggle with uh, do they – announce the game for the beginner or do they announce the game for the for the regular fan and it's not an easy it's not an easy trick and and then you know on top of that they don't there's a single feed a single video feed for the world so you can't decide as a television station to replay a particular play yourself you get a single feed and then you just narrate on top of it so yeah. you're you're very limited by what you can and can't do on on a tournament like this just because yeah. there's you know, too many, uh, you know, too many uh, televisions in the world trying to get the feed. So, well, I, I bet that balance is tough to strike. It's like giving a talk at a conference or teaching a class where you might have lean newbies in the room and people who are very experienced. Yeah. And, you know, you know, of course, if you're uh, in, in the room, you can react to the questions and the comments and, you know, on television, you can react to people's Twitter feeds and their oh. and their Reddit comments. And I have to say, because I've been sitting around a bit, uh, spent a little time on Reddit looking at the World Cup thread. And it's 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 almost sad how little people know about the rules, but want to comment, on it, which is, you know, it's OK if you don't know the rules, but then don't don't comment on it. But uh, at least not with extreme indigna indignation. But um, yeah. even the announcers have been caught out not really knowing the rules, which is a little bit of a pet peeve for mine because you're a professional yeah. calling a sport, like sit down, read the rules, have someone coach you, get certified. It's really not that hard. Yeah. You know, do the, do the steps you need to be a professional. Yeah. Well, it seems like there'd be an opportunity. Let's say the Fox feed could be for the, the soccer diehards. And then some of the games were also on FS1 or you've got the Fox Sports app. It seems like if they really wanted to, they could do an audio feed that's more for the beginners. Well, and they do it the other way, is that the uh, Men in Blazers podcast group, um, who, who are kind of famous uh, you know, soccer podcasters, um, uh, they, they do a Twitch feed. Not that I watched, but they do a Twitch feed live, so they're doing a watch party. So different commentary, definitely not for the beginner, but... Uh, you know, I think you get to, if you want to listen to that, you can listen to very different chatter. I think it's kind of like how the, the Manning brothers do Monday night football right. or something like that. So. Or the, the college football playoff has all kinds of alternative feeds with different audio and they, they do run different, uh, different video for, for some of those feeds. But if you want to hear, you know, three or four coaches just talking about the game as it's happening round table you can do that or you know you've, you got options there's the the one feed that has nothing but the uh, stadium sound which is yeah. kind of refreshing sometimes it is it is I, I do like it when at least in soccer when an announcer either the audio goes out for a little while sometimes technical difficulties or they just decide to let you listen for a little while and that's fun too so that that is a nice uh that is a nice approach yeah well the the most fun I had this week um was on Wednesday, I'll share a little bit about it. And we could probably, we could do a deeper dive, maybe the first episode we do in 2023. But on Wednesday, Ted Stiles was in town of uh, Stiles Associates Lean recruiting firm and, and someone who's been learning and involved in the lean community a long time. Uh, he was in Cincinnati. So we drove down, we did the 9 a.m. Toyota Georgetown plant tour, which I'd never been to that facility. 
the tram tour. They they drive you through it, and that's not the best. That's not really going to Gemba, but it's something, and uh, enjoyed that. And you know that tour, the uh, the the narrator there. It's it's pretty much for like lean beginners. They're trying yeah. to explain like first introduction um, to terms, and you know the, uh, the 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 tour guide. And he was admittedly new, and he's still being trained, but he he was reading a script, and instead of saying tax time. He sp- it must have been in all capitals because he spelled it out T A K T time. Like, all right, well, yeah, he'll get there. Hopefully, someone's gonna get there. Coach him up, um, and you know, so that that was that was fun. And then we uh, went down to Frankfurt and spent some time with David Meyer at Glens Creek Distilling. So that was really like that was the most lean whiskey day um, I've maybe ever had. Yeah, no, that's a. Uh... That's a great, great uh, combination of events. Of course, David Meyer used to work at the site and now, uh, uh, you know, gets to gets to practice his lean trade, uh, making uh, an increasing uh, diversity of different labels under under Glens Creek. Um, He continues to invent new stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has probably more. Seems like he has more different expressions, I guess we call them right. Different expressions under his label than some of the majors do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty, pretty impressive. His uh, experimentation and exploration that he pursues. So yeah, yeah, lots of uh, lots of good lean whiskey uh, uh, stuff for you, and that certainly could be some 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 future fodder for a whole yeah. other topic of what visiting sites is like. So yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of lean talk with David. We we went through elements of his uh, distillery process because you know Ted hadn't been there before either. And I've been there and you know, every time I'm there, you learn some things and, you know, David's got the ability to do small batches or, you know, everything is a single barrel right. release for him. One, one little detail I learned from him, like a terminology thing that legally a distillery can sell you something that says single barrel on the bottle and single barrel has no legally defined term. Huh. It, might, it might not literally be a single barrel. It could be a marrying of, David was saying, you know, not naming names, but like, oh, yeah, this one distillery says to them a single barrel is like marrying together 25 different barrels. <laughs> like that sounds like what you might call small batch, which also has no legal definition. Right. Well, maybe they should they should get on that and start <laughs> to find those things. That's that's uh, a lot of terms get thrown around, you know, from organic to, you know, uh, uh, you know that that the darn aren't don't have legal definitions and but they get used as marketing terms so yeah um yeah unless there's a a barrel number on it which i assume at least if they put a barrel number on it hopefully it's actually a single barrel um right. yeah and david does it might not be. you know garrison brothers does that when they do a single barrel release as well right yep yeah, a lot too a lot too so might be something to something to look out for so so that sounds like a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, these are all events leading into the holidays. Um, I, I don't know if this was really meant to be a Merry Christmas episode, but it turns into one. And yeah. you've got you've got quite the festive shirt on. So it, it, it's kind of like an ugly sweater. I'll describe it for those who are, are just listening to the podcast. Those on YouTube will be able to see it. So it looks like an ugly Christmas sweater. Well, kind of step back. It says, I'm full of holiday spirit. It's called bourbon. Well, that's a that's a pretty good uh, pretty good holiday spirit um, to be filled with. So yeah. uh, I don't know about wrapping the lights around the glass. That that might be a a tricky no. 
tricky concoction, if you would, but yeah. And I'm only two sips into holiday cheer. So the t-shirt's not totally accurate. I am not full of bourbon, but I, I think I'm full of holiday cheer. Well, that's good. That's good. I'm getting there. I'm, I'm usually, uh, usually all about it, but, uh, uh, getting there a little slowly this year. So I'm definitely not full of holiday spirit in the bourbon sense either. And this is, uh, um, but might as well get into our whiskey selection. We we yeah. did decide on the theme of some some holiday cocktails that felt like they fit with the holiday spirit. Um, so we we each we each made something a a bit different, which uh, at least visually, um, you know, absolutely fits the bill of I think a holiday cocktail sipper. Yeah. So tell us about yours first. So, so mine is a hot buttered bourbon, which is obviously a take on the hot buttered rum. Mm -hmm. um, don't even know if I have rum because I, I really don't drink that. Um, and and I, you know, I tried to find a single recipe on this, and it just doesn't seem to exist. So, I'll I'll I'll, I'll find one that I'll include in the notes. But you know, it starts with hot water. I, I found an interesting um, tip, which was really preheat the glass. Make sure you know mm -hmm. I fill it up with hot water. Just let it sit get the temperature and that then it's you know by the time you're 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 putting the, the hot water in to make the drink you're you're in good shape you put in some hot water you actually buy this hot buttered rum mix which is you know sugar you know it's a it's a it's a refrigerated uh it's some syrupy sugary uh concoction of bad stuff um you know so <laughs> yeah. i forget all what's in it but um it's it's you know certainly not good for you, but um, you you mix in it's, you know it's it, it's very consistent to putting in slightly crystallized honey into hot water. You know, it just takes a little while to dissolve. Bitters are optional. Put in some bourbon. I used uh, mellow corn. Um, you know, it's a cheaper, straightforward, very simple uh, whiskey, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, you're not going to get a whole lot of the nuance of, of the whiskey coming through in this just because of the mix and everything else. And then, you know, at least what I do and what I found was you top it off with a uh, heavy whipped cream. Mm -hmm. So I, I've, you know, I whipped up some, some heavy whipping cream, put a little, little layer of on top of that and then topped it with nutmeg. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not a, it's a, it's a sipper. It's a nice warm, you know, bourbony, but not, not, not super cocktail or mm -hmm. spirit forward drink. You know, it's, this only has one and a half ounces of bourbon in it. And, uh, you know, it, it still comes through, mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, it doesn't overwhelm you like some, some cocktails do. Yeah. And the, the mellow corn is a uh, 90% corn recipe. So it's, uh, it's, 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 that's a really high percentage corn and um, bottled in bond. The, or the, the, the bourbon I used in my cocktails also a bottled in bond. So 100 proof for 50% yep. um, ABV. And I, I just pulled up here because I don't think I've made hot buttered rum, but it, it says if you want, if you didn't have the mix, you could beat brown sugar, butter, honey, cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, and salt in a bowl until blended and smooth. Yeah. I wasn't going to do that. Um, <laughs> right. And so uh you know, I, I think for the real connoisseur of cocktail making that they want to make a bunch of these, probably worth it to make your own. Um, yeah. But I was not going to do that. You can you can buy a mix on Amazon for 
or not not a whole lot. Okay, not scolding you. Just just I was curious. Yep. Of no, what. That's, it's a whole bunch of stuff in there, which is what scared me off from making it in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> so cool. What so, I mean, what? So, what? Well, what? What's the verdict then? I mean, is it? I I love it. I I enjoy it a lot. It's uh, I've made a couple of them. This uh, I made some at Thanksgiving, and that's kind of how I first experimented with it, and I I enjoy it. It's I I don't know if I'd do two in a row. Certainly wouldn't do yeah. three, but um, I, I think it's a perfect. Uh, warming cocktail um good that's uh i i think definitely definitely suits the spirit of the of the season okay well i think i may try that when uh back home in texas for uh christmas and new year so i am drinking i'll, I'll hold it up again i'd say a cold cocktail which might sound counterintuitive for being december um it is called again a bourbon flip it's it's listed oftentimes as being a Christmas drink. And it it's it's sort of a, a lighter version of an eggnog. So it's really more in, in that category of, you know, because of the spice um, on, on top, a little bit of pumpkin pie spice on top. And in uh, and the, and the egg, it's, it's noggy. And, you know, if you've had eggnog before, I'm not a huge eggnog fan. It would make you think of Christmas. So I don't think you would want to sip on one of these on a hot summer day. No, and and I, you know, there aren't that many warm cocktails, so I think it's fine that it's cold. Um, and it, yeah, definitely anything that falls into the into that category of of you know, sort of, sort of anything close to eggnog, I, I think you're you're automatically in a in a holiday spirit. So, um, you know, and and it, like like a lot of cocktails, I think it, the holidays you take a little more time. You're not just whipping up a cocktail to to sit down for the evening, you're kind of enjoying it a little more, a few more ingredients are okay. And, and this definitely, I don't know if there's more ingredients, but just from a process standpoint, yeah. there's a lot to it. You, you could probably, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you could make a batch of hot buttered rum, uh, pour it in a mugs, top with whipped cream. Uh, the bourbon flip, I'll, I'll tell you about the ingredients and the process. This is probably more of a, a, a one at a time kind of drink. So I started off with uh, two ounces of bourbon, and I used um, a benchmark bonded bourbon. This is one I did not know about until uh, fairly recently. It was recommended um, to me, and, and just to dig into that a little bit. It's, you know, on the label it says McAfee Brothers Benchmark. I'm like, well, who the hell is that? And then on the side, it's distilled, aged, and bottled by Buffalo Trace Distillery, Frankfort, Kentucky. This yep. is, you know, um, my my understanding of it is that this is Buffalo Trace aged one year less okay same mash bill same juice buffalo trace in all the places is outrageously hard to find it's about 25 dollars a bottle at regular retail price benchmark uh, the bonded was i think 18 or 19 they've got a little bit cheaper one they do a benchmark single barrel they they, they do a number of, of options so got the bourbon the whiskey bar at the cincinnati airport kind of recommended it and so if you're looking for buffalo trace and you can't find it Go go grab benchmark. Yeah, I, I I've heard good things about it. I've never had it. Um, I think the hype and the uh, uh, the the scavenging for the Buffalo Trace products is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, it you know Buffalo Trace is worth twenty five bucks. Is it worth yeah. standing in a hundred person line for? No. No. Um, but when I lived in L.A. and you could go to Ralph's or CVS and they had it on the shelf and you could buy it with your discount card for $21.99. Yeah. Like, I'm, sure, absolutely. Especially for cocktails. 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a good whiskey. I, I don't understand standing in line for it. I don't understand it being stripped off the shelf and people right. and stores needing to say one bottle per customer. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't I, I I don't understand the hype. But you know, hype hype has that you know um, irrational aspect to it. So right. it's just uh, sort of how somebody showed me a video. They were actually at Buffalo Trace, just trying to. And they on their website, they'll show you what's in stock if you want to go. And almost nothing is. Yeah. And and you know he got there early in the morning, and there was a line mm-hmm. out the door before yeah. they opened just to buy what was probably the only thing in stock was some Buffalo Trace, and just yeah. and they limit how often you can go back. I was talking to some neighbors um, here last night. Um, w- one of them actually got a bottle of Blanton's down there at the uh, distillery for $63, which is what the retail price is supposed to be. And, right. You, know, you cannot find it um, anywhere really for that price. I've seen it for double that, triple that. I'm like, well, right. no, it's good, but I'm not going to overpay. And I'm not, I'm not going to go stand in line. Now, you and I um, stood in line for hours to get barbecue in Texas. So we're not opposed to waiting in line. But. Yes, we have done that. But when there's plenty of other options on the shelf, right, that that are that are perfectly good, mm-hmm. like the benchmark, then yeah. then why why bother? So yeah. I think that's a that's a fair choice. So, so what do you think of the bourbon flip so far? Yeah, well, um, so let me let me tell you the rest of the ingredients oh, in the right. process. Right. So um, take a, a metal shaker, uh, two ounces of the bourbon, one whole egg. So, you know, there's some eggnog recipes, traditional eggnog recipes of raw egg. You've got to be well comfortable uh, with that, I guess. One ounce of simple syrup. Now, I actually used a simple syrup that I make at home using allulose, which we've talked about before. It's an artificial sweetener that's very, it's naturally occurring. It's more expensive than sugar, but it's very similar um, to sugar. So I'm cutting the calories a little bit using that. And then um, you dry shake it. So have you ever made a, a cocktail that requires dry shaking? I have not. So uh, to help foam the egg, right? So you can see, you know, it's a very opaque drink. Right. It's got that nice foam on top. Dry shaking is when you you shake without ice. Okay. So you kind of break down the egg, you know, about 30 seconds and, and, and froth it up a little bit. Then add ice and do your traditional, okay, now we make it cold um, shake. And then, you know, a, a, a pinch of... I didn't have nutmeg, but pumpkin pie spice, I think, has nutmeg in it, and that's fine. So uh, I I like it. I, I wouldn't want a second one. Okay. You know, it's just, it's 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 heavy, not as bad as a super thick eggnog. So yeah. I think especially with the artificial sweetener, I'll call it diet eggnog, which doesn't, <laughs> maybe doesn't sound appealing, but, uh, but it, yeah, it's good. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not a crazy fan of egg drinks, but, um, but you know, a whiskey sour, you know, I don't mind one, um, but I probably rarely want a second one after I've had one. So, yeah, so that's that's fair. You know, make one, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. It 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 changes it up, mixes it up and then move on to something else. Now, I did experiment with this about I don't know, one, one, one or two weeks ago. Part of me said I should have done it for the first time here for doing the episode, but was good enough that I would make it again. I'm just not going to have a second one today. That's for sure. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. All right. Well, cheers. And um, I'll hold that up again. Yep. Once more. Hey, cheers. Cheers. And um, all right. So you want, we'll, we'll, we'll move into, we're going to do an in the news segment, not related 
uh, to whiskey. But as I mentioned up front, Starbucks, you could call them a purveyor of coffee or speaking of sugar, you could call them a purveyor of sugary milk and ice that maybe has coffee in it, right? Yeah, I do wonder how many more grams of sugar they go through than grams of coffee if they measured it by weight. Mm. Um, that would be an interesting stat that I doubt they share, but um, certainly does seem like it's you know more sugar at this point. Well, I mean, you, you, I mean, the nutritional information for the, the drinks is online, so you could probably see how many grams, and you could probably probably guess how many grams. You, you're the espresso making guy. Yeah, you, could probably, you could probably you could probably surmise how much how much uh, many grams per, you know per shot, and so yeah, you could probably do some math based on how many drinks you know overall that they make in a year. Um, you know, so uh, I'm not going to go do that math, but uh, right. plenty of sugar going through that place. That that right. we can say for sure. But the uh, the article that we're we're talking about was actually an article from. August. So I'd be curious how much progress they've been making since then. But here's the headline and we'll post a link. Um, it'll be a, a free article. I was able to get the gift article link. So if you're not a Wall Street Journal subscriber, you could go and read the article. But the headline is Starbucks is rethinking almost everything, including how to make Frappuccinos. Subheadline reads, changing tastes and frazzled workers prompt CEO Howard Schultz to press for a reset, quote, we will design new stores from scratch, end of quote. So what was yeah. your first reaction to, to that? There's a lot to unpack there. You know, I think the first thing I want to react to is, should say returning CEO Howard Schultz. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, it, you, you kind of wonder, is, is succession planning not working there? Or, you know, what else is going wrong? Or is he just that brilliant that he has to yeah. keep returning? He, he came back in March 2022. Right. And it's the second time doing that, right? Second time coming back. Yeah. So it's his third stint, uh, essentially. And uh, um, of course, he's also not really the founder, but that's mm -hmm. a whole other, whole other thing. But um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think the, you know, the, the, the whole rethink, you know, we talk about continuous improvement should theoretically mean you, you never have to rethink everything because you're always rethinking everything. But, right. but, you know, sometimes it's, it's, you have to go bigger. You have to, you have to look deeper. You have to tear the house down to the studs, right? Um, kind of, kind of, kind of improvement. And essentially that's what he's kind of saying and asking for is let's, let's tear Starbucks down to the studs mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and rethink it. Um, and that of course is a huge prospect, but uh, I'll say bold in the sense that, you know, you see other companies that, have survived, you know, sort of shockwave after shockwave. Netflix is an example where, you know, they they tore their company down to the studs to go from mailing DVDs to streaming as an example. And so right. every once in a while, there's a change, whether it's a change forced upon you uh, externally or a change of outrunning your own pathway mm -hmm. where you, you, you got you to take a step back and rethink the yeah. whole thing. And that seems like to be where they are. Yeah. I mean, you know, in manufacturing terms, you know, it would be the opportunity or even in healthcare to build a greenfield site. Yes. You know, I think of the progression. Toyota came into the U.S. with General Motors and Numi. That was an old legacy factory that probably dated back to the 50s. Yeah, I think so. You can only do so much within the, the confines of, of the layout. And then Toyota built the plant in uh, Kentucky 
and other plants. And then when they built the plant in San Antonio, that was a chance to yet again rethink as much as you could rethink. I saw construction when I was in Georgetown. They are putting in um, some assembly lines that said for future EV production. Mm-hmm. That's an opportunity. You can't rethink the whole building, but you can rethink elements of how you do assembly, not just because it's electric, but a new chance to try again. So, you know, I'd be curious if Starbucks will do like McDonald's will tear down a store and rebuild on the same site. I, I think they definitely will. I mean, they, they have the capital, they have the cash flow, you know, at some point, I don't, I don't know, I'm not going to go deep in their financials, but I, I think for certain, you know, if, if nothing else, there's aesthetic that they, you know, always want to keep upgraded, but um, but, but I would think so. And, and, you know, if you look at, you know, I, I was on a road trip recently, so I, you know, naturally one of the few places that you can reliably pull over and get a meal at is a McDonald's and, and it's very different than it used to be. Um, it's really set up for drive-throughs and things like that. And, and, uh, very different aesthetic, very different functionality. And, you know, the, the, the difference though, is that the, the, the number of different footprints that Starbucks has to work with right. is massively more complex than Star- than, than McDonald's. Yeah. Um, I actually used to own a property. I was part owner. I was a minority silent partner in a construction project, but owned a property that McDonald's bought. And we, you know, we built a McDonald's or they built a McDonald's on the property and then it was sold to them. But it was... Uh, uh, you know, it was very strict what they could work with, right? What they were willing to do and what they weren't willing to do. And Starbucks is willing to do a whole lot more, right? Just to just to get his number, the number of uh, uh, storefronts that they that they've gotten to. Um, so that'll make that more complicated. But right. I would imagine, you know, probably even more necessary. As yeah. a when we get into some of the detail here, you know, the the article talks about not just the layout of the store, but some of the equipment. So I could see where if you had new, better equipment, you could put that in most or all of the stores, regardless of layout. Um, I I spent an hour this morning. There's a new location that opened maybe six weeks ago here uh, on the Kentucky side of the river. It is clearly not like it's not a freestanding purpose-built Starbucks, as you sometimes see. It's in a building where it appears they are leasing space. And there was this parcel of, or part of the building. It does allow for a drive-through, which is an increasingly large part of the Starbucks business, which affects operations inside the store, of course. But, um, you know, it's interesting to look and in, in, in to sit and watch the process and think about the store layout and say, well, I, I really, I, I'm sure this wasn't built to whatever new standard that they're developing now. Can't be. Can't be. They, they, you'll, you'll see it in probably more uh, pristine locations first, and uh, they've got to get it right. They're going to just keep building whatever they have now because they still want, you know, they still want the sports store front. They still want to build a habit with the customers going to a particular store, and then, um, and 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 so until there's such a new design, they will just keep building, keep building the new ones, but. You know, they've evolved so much uh, over the years. I still remember, and I have no idea what even decade this is, but when Star, when, uh, sorry, when Subway first created toasted subs and they put the toaster in the sub shop, it broke the system. Yeah. Right. 
it broke all the subways because <laughs> it, it changed the flow. And I'm still not sure they ever figured it out, but it was it, it, it really was almost catastrophic because they inserted this one piece of equipment. Yeah. Wasn't that wasn't that bold, but it it broke the flow, it broke yeah. the layout and made a whole lot of things more 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 challenging. So yeah. Uh you know, I, I and, and Starbucks in this case has more evolved than inserted one little thing, but uh there's a bunch of ways in which they've evolved. I think the two we could talk about the most is uh drink complexity and proliferation. Right. Um, and then the shift to the percentage of drive-through customers, mm-hmm. those two major mm-hmm. dynamics really changed the store in a lot of ways. Yeah. And and the addition of hot food is relatively recent mm-hmm. in Starbucks history. So, you know, I've heard, um, you know, with the Starbucks. Yeah, that'd, be a, that'd be a third big one. With, with the Subway thing that um, at the time Quiznos was really taking market share, toasted subs. And the, my understanding is that Quiznos... Because I used to, like, when we would do lean classes, we would go to Quiznos. Let's go get lunch. Because they bought, supposedly, these old Burger King broilers that are flow. Right. Broilers, right? So they would start the sandwich. It would flow through the toasting machine. And I think they all, I mean, maybe they would carry it around if you really didn't want to toast the sub. And then they would finish it on the other side of the oven. My understanding is that Subway had, like, kind of a batch oven that wasn't, in the flow. And, you know, it's an example of looking at, uh, you know, product innovation, if it's not paired with process design, product right. design, process design, you, I mean, that's a, that's an old manufacturing lesson, right? We get terms like design for assembly, design for manufacturability, right? Yep. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, you, you have to think about what your process is going to be. Um, I still remember back in my automotive days, I was retooling a plant um, just to add a convertible, you're adding a convertible and importing it from it was made in another location, another country. And um, boy, the, the process changes that had to take place and the, the process innovation that I, I won't go into too many details, but the, the ergonomic standards that existed in the country it was made in were not going to fly in the U.S. and we had to create some new processes to make them work. So uh, you know, you've got to think you can't just invent a new product. You can't just invent a new process technology. You've got to understand how that all fits with yeah. process flow. And, you know, with Starbucks, they've had so many, and I don't want to call them innovations, so many changes, right? so many changes from the sandwiches to the, you know, just the food in general, the drive through volume uh, and the drink complexity in particular, the frozen drinks um, that their process has not, kept up and it's had an impact on 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 speed it's had an impact on the workers in right. particular it seems I, I I remember reading complaints um, from baristas at Starbucks that when they added the warmed food option that that was that was more labor time it was more labor content and that the store wasn't being um, allocated or budgeted a higher level of labor so there's a different level of you think of what's what's the the product? What's the the process flow? And I guess part of that process design is how many people do you need to do that more complicated work? And there were many, many complaints that they didn't have that down uh, to a science or there, there were complaints. But, you know, I sat there observing um, this morning and, and, and one time a customer, she came back up and complained her sandwich or whatever it was, uh, was still frozen in the middle. 
And, you know, they're, they're warming. It's not a scratch kitchen. They are warming frozen food. And I mean, I've had that defect occasionally. I'm surprised they don't have that more dialed in. I don't know how that, that goes wrong. Yeah. And that's a bad defect. I mean, that, that really is for a customer to get, you know, cold in the middle. That's, that's no good at all. And, you know, I'd imagine, I know I've read some stuff is that they all, they all take different cook times. Mm. Um, sure. And, and so, you know, do you just select the wrong one when you're mm-hmm. rushing between orders and you forget one because, you know, there's not, you know, I've never seen a cheat sheet up. Um, I'm not sure they punch in the item number or the item itself. And so did they just punch in and it wasn't warmed enough? Um, and, and it could also be how long does it have to sit out of the freezer? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, did they run short that day and they pulled some out of the freezer? Yeah. I don't know if they have enough rooming, you know, room warming to not room warming time, but, you know, okay. uh, defrosting time. So, I, you know, I don't know enough about that, but I didn't get behind the what counter. happens with complexity. Yeah, I wasn't able to get behind the counter to see some of that detail. But, you know, you, there are things you can observe. And, and some of this will touch on why, you know, Starbucks says they're trying to redesign um, not just for efficiency, but um, to make work easier. That would certainly be. A good ideal, but you know, there's the drive-through, and 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 that article said about half of their business now is drive-through, and not every store has a drive-through. So I don't know if it's half of the business at stores with drive-throughs. But the the one thing you could notice, observe customer behavior, is very few people came inside and went to the register and ordered with a human. You know, I walk. I've gotten in the habit of when I'm walking to that Starbucks, which is maybe a five minute walk, I'll punch in the mobile order, knowing that like then about when I show up, give or take a minute, sometimes it's ready before I get there. Sometimes I wait just a couple of minutes. It's not that I'm trying to not interact with anybody, but in a way it's it's, it's easier, I guess. So I yeah. try to say hi and thank you to whoever has made the beverage or whoever's put it in that pickup area. But that's another thing they've had to change operationally with all of these mobile orders. You're not handing it to somebody across the counter. You're putting it on a counter and that system has evolved where, you know, now you have letters of, of your, of your names. It's not just a free for all of a bunch of beverages sitting there. That sounds like somebody's process improvement. Yeah. And I'd imagine there's, there's, I mean, it, it, I've been into a few and, and I can't imagine you can't just walk in and grab a drink and walk out. Like that's gotta be the easiest thing in the world um, to, to get a free drink on. I wonder, well, that, how much theft is there? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I I'd imagine not that much. Um, you know, you're you're stealing a Starbucks, right? So it's it's not not exactly the high high risk reward uh, ratio there. But but you know, so I, I I go to Starbucks very little. I, I've probably been you know five times in the last five years. Um, you know, typically it'd be like at an airport or something, and it's that's that's the last option I have, or I've got to wait somewhere. It's just not a not a drink I enjoy that much. You know, they don't make the best straight espresso, mm-hmm. and that's kind of my preferred drink. Or even even what they even when I go to I'll I'll call it a real coffee shop. I'll ask, do you make a Starbucks macchiato or a real macchiato? Because <laughs> Starbucks has messed up the term. It's not actually a macchiato, but mm. I'm like, oh, we make a real macchiato, which is one of my favorite drinks. Is a real macchiato, but it's not a Starbucks one. So I I don't even have the app. If I go. Um, I, I've got to, I've got to go to the counter and place an order. Um, 
And I almost feel bad doing it because I feel like I'm breaking up their system at that point. Yeah. It comes back to that labor allocation of, of how do they plan and forecast and allocate for how many people need to be working there at different times of day, different times of the week. That's got to be a big, a big challenge, an evolving challenge. An evolving challenge, but, you know, between data and then, you know, I think the fact that so many people are going through a drive through it's a regular, it's not a spontaneous thing, right? It's not a, hey, yeah, let's go out for Starbucks as a treat. It's like, no, I get my Starbucks on my way to work. Yeah. And and there's, I, I don't know what the numbers are anymore, but I know in the past there's been a significant percentage are once a day or even twice a day Starbucks visitors. Mm-hmm. And that's a big chunk of the revenue, which means it's a steady state, which means it's easier, you know, if you have that that everyday usage, it's kind of like planning traffic. It's like mm. every day is mostly the same with a few exceptions. And, and so I think most of their volume probably falls into that category. Um, and, and, you know, they even say in the article, they talk about some of their regulars who they know when they're walking in what they what they've ordered and mm-hmm. um whether they're going to get them on time or not based on based on some of the challenges they're they're facing along the way. Yeah. So, you know, the the article here again from August kind of follows up a 2009 article that I had blogged about back in the day and I'll share a link to that article as well. You know, reading this article, you might think well, they're talking about um, improving the process, rearranging things, reducing wasted motion, improving ergonomics, and you know, so well, didn't didn't they already quote unquote implement lean more than a decade ago? Um, we'll 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 put links in the show notes as well. You know, because the Wall Street Journal had written about it, John Shook wrote about it uh, on on the LEI blog in 2009. Like this article doesn't mention the word lean or Toyota, right? But you know, go back to 2009, you know, uh, John Shook wrote this article kind of defending that, you know, this isn't just about efficiency. It's not turning workers into robots, because that was one of the concerns or complaints in 2009. But it was really, as, as, as Shook was explaining, um, really about teaching scientific problem solving um, to the frontline employees. But then kind of, to me, begs the question that you know, maybe, you know, comes up through the work happening now. But, you know, it's one thing to teach the frontline employees, but what if their district managers and executives in Starbucks don't don't understand lean? Like, is it fair to say like, well, you've all been trained, so uh, don't complain about anything. You're, you're empowered to fix it. And like, well, I don't think that's always fair. No, it's not. And I, I think they went on a journey working with, within the parameters that they could, right? And, and so... You know, I, I don't know what they've done since, but, you know, those workers had, you know, parameters that they could work in. They, they had the equipment that they had, they had the footprint that they had, and and they, they practiced continuous improvement. Mm-hmm. They worked on standardization, which was a big part of, of what they were trying to do, which, which, you know, obviously, if you're trying to deliver consistency across a network that big is, is pretty important. Um you know, how do you train people, all of those things. But at some point, you know, they can they can just run afoul of, of what can I improve and what can't I improve, right? Right, like I'd, I'd like this to be over there. Well, that won't fit without us buying the building next door, right? That won't fit without us tearing the store apart. That won't fit 
without us inventing new technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so, you know, in in certain environments, you know, if you're, you know, I, I know Boeing was really big on this of having the skunk works right in yeah. their factories. You could go to a a little a little area and work with a couple, you know, master machinists and fabricators and make up tooling. Well, in, in a store of you know ten people, you you, you don't have a fabricator. You you certainly can't invent a new oven or you know invent a new blender or 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 start tearing down the walls. So so you still have to work within the parameters that you're that you're fixed with, and and I, I think the article today really is just making clear that that that's sort of run its course. I don't want to say it's run its course like they're out of ideas, just that there's enough uh, enough areas in which they need to improve that the workers can't do on their own. Well, I mean, so what I saw observing in the store today were many of the problems that were supposedly being addressed back in 2009. I saw people bending down to to get milk out of a fridge and putting it back into um, the fridge. There's an equipment issue and a, and a layout issue. Um, you know, lot, lots of movement, movement back and forth. Um, somebody um, you know, their personal spaghetti diagram would be pretty twisty. And I saw people bumping into each other, these different flows, um, uh, you know, you know, kind of people smashing into each other. So it makes me wonder, like, you know, I saw a Toyota last week, not perfectly mixed model, but there's one assembly line where you see Camrys and RAV4s, you know, kind of a very one piece flow, of not just colors, but body styles. And, um, that's that's in, you know that's good to see, but they don't have the ideal of building any product on any assembly line. That would be you know ultimate flexibility. So it makes me wonder, like from a Starbucks perspective, that's one job shop back there. Like at what point do they consider the need for focused factories? Or you think of like multiple production cells in a factory. Here's the cold drink cell. Here's the hot drink cell. Here's the drip coffee cell. And then I don't know where the food, you know, could it, it, where food would fit into that cell. Yeah, you know, at some point, maybe the, the the process and the timing and the labor would work out to be kind of a combined cell. But like to me, it just seemed like just this just molecular motion of you know people bumping into each other, which which doesn't seem ideal. Yeah, and, and that and that. Uh... No, it certainly doesn't seem ideal. It seems like everybody's trained on everything. Everybody tries to pitch in. Everybody tries to get stuff done. You definitely have somebody working in the counter. Um, Others more focused on drinks. But uh, no, there's a lot of crossover flow. You can see even a small Starbucks might have 10 people behind the counter just to deal with the volume. And I really feel bad when I walk in, there's a walk into one, it'll be one person working there and they're yeah. totally not as busy as a, you know, a regular Starbucks, but I'm almost like, there's no way you can do yeah. this with one and not, and not, not struggle. But if the, the number of, you know, you, you've got to look at, you know, product and process together, which you brought up earlier is, you know, the, the product proliferation not just on the drink side, but also the drink side has gone through the roof. Mm-hmm. And you, you have to wonder, you know, you don't have to wonder that much what it's done to process. Right. That part's clear. It, it's, you know, you'll read, you'll read little articles and stuff about uh, how they're, 
you know, they're, they're, caffeine-free drinks, uh, kids got caffeine at 8 p.m. and their kids are wired and how many drinks get screwed up by just a little bit. And, um, but, you know, I, I think, I think, I don't know if remember if it's in the article, but it was 170,000 different mm-hmm. combinations. Right. Um, and even back in 2009, it was 80,000. So uh, do they really need, like, I, I know everybody likes their particular drink, Right. Would they really leave Starbucks right? if if they cut that complication down by two thirds, perhaps? Right. Well, there's there's new products, and then you've got seasonality, where certain drinks come on and off the menu at different um, times of year. But um, you know, I, I went and looked up something about uh, McDonald's, where uh, McDonald's in in recent years really kind of slashed the number of items available on uh, on their menu. They simplified the menu. They got rid of all-day breakfast. So it's funny, at one point that was you know really going to bring people into the stores. And the franchisees, maybe they were saying, look, the benefit of that is not worth the kitchen complexity of the challenges of cooking breakfast while you're cooking um, other food. So you know the franchisees were actually calling for that. I'm sure not all of them agreed. Right. Um, but they're, uh, you know, they're, 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 Cost went down. Their profitability is up. Starbucks has had sales growth, but they've taken a hit in profitability, probably because of labor costs and supply costs. You know, that seem to be the, the two main things, right? Yeah, and and, and anybody that's ever gone through a skew uh, rationalization, I'll call it a skew rationalization study, has found that there's a lot of skews that don't make sense, mm-hmm. right? And and so you just you simplify, and and that. That exercise almost always results in the 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 correct path is skew simplification, and you know I'm not going to advocate that that's the right answer because I haven't studied Starbucks in a way, but I do wonder if again an individual worker at a Starbucks can't even advocate for you know skew rationalization because. Yeah. You'd have to cut 170,000 down to 70,000 for it to make make sense, right? For I don't, it to really I don't make an impact. Yeah. I, I don't know at what point a smaller number of drink possibilities makes things easier, but there's you know increased variation in milks now. Like oat milk probably was not real common in, in 2009. But yeah, you're right. We we don't know. I don't think Starbucks would know. And my question would be, you know, how do you do a small test of change? To sort of try to prove out to your point, Jamie, like I'm going to look at their mobile app here and look at some of these, you know, festive flavors, uh, drinks here, like sugar cookie, almond milk latte. Like if they eliminated that, they would save maybe the sugar cookie syrup. I looked at this earlier. I didn't really consider uh, buying one. But if they slash that from the menu, that's one less syrup that they have to try to get. Would a customer say, well, fine, I'm going to go get that drink somewhere else? Maybe they couldn't. Maybe they would say, okay, fine, I'll get a caramel brulee latte. You know, uh, at some point, you could maybe just kind of do some tests. Right. I don't know. But people get irritated, though, because it would be like going to a Big Mac, uh, McDonald's and not being able to get a Big Mac. Like, unless standardization you expect. Right. It it is is what you expect, although. you know, you still get a Big Mac at McDonald's, right? They didn't cut that from the menu. So, so you know, they are doing these big experiments. They are doing the more in process. It doesn't appear from the article that they're really looking at the menu. Um, 
because they're there was it called trier center um kind of like a prototype lab prototype lab it's it's really not a store right it's really it's really a place to work on on process on technology on i guess store layout as well and so the goal is to experiment a great deal but it's not a storefront so they're not doing they're not doing market tests in there they're just mm-hmm. doing process technology and layout tests in this uh in this in this trier center yeah and you know there's some language there that really um you know, it was re- really interesting. I mean, it sounded like the, this idea of integrated product and process design. There's a quote here that the center began pairing baristas, beverage developers, and engineers to figure out how to carve seconds off the time it takes to prepare coffee drinks, particularly complex cold ones. And, you know, there's um, the, the 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 layout issue, then there's the equipment issue. So one of the things they were um, sounded pretty proud of, it was a former GE person actually now working at Starbucks, uh, a portable blender that could be kept near the espresso machines. Well, like that exists elsewhere in the world. I, in fact, once <laughs> random, random memory here, uh, when I worked at Dell computer in Austin in like 1999, a friend uh, had a boat and, um, you know, you get to go out with him and his girlfriend. And, you know, a lot of times people would bring beer Well, I bought a black and Decker Margaret blender that ran off of rechargeable batteries where you could make a margarita off about battery power. Right. And then there's, there's little small, you know, bullet blenders. I've got one in my kitchen. Right. So is Starbucks being innovative or like, I mean, it, it seems like some of that's more or less off the shelf technology. Off the shelf, but if you're going to replace what's probably many millions of units, it's a, it's a big decision, right? So sure. you do leave. Enough test the heck out of it before you were sure and re- bought millions of units and, and trained all the stores. Cause it would also change. Wow. It would change the workflow. Mm-hmm. It would change perhaps the layout, right? Where do you store them? You know, where do you charge the batteries? Yeah. Um, you know, where do you wash, right? Cause you still have the wash that you've got to, you've got to deal with. And so it's walking um, for that. Yeah. It's, it's all the, it's all the ice, the, all, all that other stuff. But th- but that's where I wonder. I mean, I'm I'm just speculating. It's a thought experiment of if you had a cold beverage cell, like they have espresso machines where all the drinks flow through. It seems the same espresso machines. If you had a focus factory or a, a quote unquote cell for making nothing but cold drinks, blended, frozen, or otherwise, you you might have its own espresso machine. Um, the 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 ice machine, the syrups, and all the stuff like make you have a little bit of a flow, including a sink to wash the blender, and right. then there might be a separate focus factory cell for the hot drinks. Now, would that require more espresso machines? It depends on the volume of the work. I don't know if that, how, how feasible that, that is, but. Um, and, and, and of course this comes down to metrics, right? Because you have, you have the speed of delivery, right? So you have the seconds it takes to make a drink, right? That's your efficiency. You have the speed at which you make drinks, which is your customer service. And then, you know, the you have the cust- the employee satisfaction of making the drinks, right? which is clearly through the floor, right? And it's through the floor for a bunch of reasons, including the public being a less tolerant public than we've perhaps ever been in, in all time to our service workers. Right. Um, and, and so that weighs on people. The short staffing makes it worse. And so that that goes there as well. But it was, it's it's been very clear from whether it's unionization efforts or just barista complaints that they're 
they're frustrated with their working conditions. And so, you know, at what point is it, hey, simpler, better service, maybe not as efficient is a good trade off to make. When we talk about time, um, one thing that was interesting in, in their mention, their quotes about the Trier Center, they wanted to speed up the time it took Starbucks to launch new ideas. There was like a time to market speed. Right. And then there's the drink delivery speed. So they they said they had a goal posted in one of the stores like now, current day, of 50 seconds time for a drink. The 2009 article talked about a store that was already one of the fastest that was doing a drink in 25 seconds on average, and they were able to take two seconds off of that. So it makes me wonder, like the difference between 2009 and 2022, the product mix is clearly different. Like I don't think it would be fair to look and say, like, oh, they're half as efficient now because it takes twice as long to make the drinks. It's not apples to apples. It's not apples to apples. And 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 I, I don't know if that's a single drink straight through. Right. Because if you do observe, you'll see them making multiple drinks at once, mm-hmm. which is clearly a recipe for making mistakes and errors. Right. Um, and uh, and so that, you know, it has that error. And so how are they measuring that? Are they measuring it one drink at a time that they're they, they clearly don't seem to be measuring it from order placement? Right. It's order, not right. Yeah. I mean, order could be two beverages in a sandwich. I, I mean, I'm sure they're using the word order very specifically not using the word beverage. I would, I would imagine, but, but I, but I also don't think it's from the time you've placed the order to the time you get it. Um, I, I, I I don't think anybody's getting their, their stuff in 50 seconds from their order time. So that's gotta be from the time they start the order to the time they deliver it. And so there's still, of course, the cue there that, that, that is part of the challenge. Right. And that's, that's part of getting more flow and it would, and there's more ways to get flow than just not knock seconds off an order of time. Right. And then, you know, kind of stepping back and, and thinking of some of the why the article talked about, uh, there's a quote here that the stores that were designed a decade ago struggled to meet today's customer demand. The cafes that once averaged 1,200 orders a day are now trying to make 1,500. Um, so that, that's, you know, there's, there's this, I I don't know. I mean, it's hard to tell how long the queue is when, I mean, I remember going to a a Starbucks in 1999 before going to work at Dell standing in like a long 12 person deep line to buy coffee. You don't see that now, but it's like a virtual queue in in the app. You don't, you don't have that same visibility. So maybe now the industrial engineer me is like, oh, maybe fewer people, uh, are, quote unquote, balking the queue, as they say, uh, you're, you're not going to walk out without placing the order. Maybe that's maybe that's good for sales in a way to make that um, that weight hidden. But, you know, there's there's, um, you know, kind of just this increased complexity. There's this drive to do more. There's the shifts to more drive through orders. And, and there's these you know employee complaints, which kind of lead to this pretty compelling case of you know, if you're trying to fend off unionization, that's that's a big fight going on right now in a lot of stores. And it sounds like it's not just about pay. It's about working conditions and staffing right. levels and things that are part of that um, process design. Yeah, and that, that all goes together, right? And and so the working conditions, the the you know, they, they do talk about the bending, the stretching, um, you know, the cleaning, all, all the things that that just don't seem to be laid out well. And and, and, you know, are you listening to people and are you fixing the stuff? And, and again, not everything can be fixed easily. It requires 
a layout change, a major rethink. And I, and I think that's the that's the key or a key is, you know, for, for managers, and I don't mean store managers, I mean leaders all the way up, they, they've got to spend enough time understanding the problems that people are dealing with and know when are you supporting them in problem solving? Mm-hmm. When are you supporting them as a coach and teaching them problem solving? And when are you listening to their problems saying, I've got that? Right. Because, again, not every problem that they can solve. If you right. have a policy issue, if you have a strategy issue, mm-hmm. if you have a structural issue, you can't go, hey, you know, employee, let me coach you through that. Like you can coach them how to co- how to how to deal with it. You can coach them how to accommodate it, but you can't coach them how to change it because it's well outside their scope. And, and so that's where leaders have to really understand you know, when am I coaching problem solving and when am I listening to take some other problem ownership and 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 take it to a different level? Right. And, and, and you know, people who know me or you know, have read my uh, book or blog posts or, or, or podcasts know I am the biggest advocate for engaging employees in improvement. At the same time, like I run across this a lot of times in healthcare where I hear people say, Things that really sound like, well, they're just delegating everything to the frontline staff that you're empowered, right? And, and you know, again, like it, 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 it takes uh, balance and and participation. Leaders can't, you know, shirk their responsibility for systemic issues. Like if you're at a hospital, there are some process improvements you can make within the context of your system. But if it's a fundamentally lousy system the frontline workers can't make those bigger, more systemic changes, uh, at least not without management approval. You think of like, you know, a flow in the emergency room and patients being backed up where they can't get admitted into beds. Well, if you start asking why and start looking at the, the value stream of care, like, well, why can't we get patients from the ER into inpatient beds? Well, because we have patients that we're trying to discharge but there's not enough capacity in the nursing homes or long-term care. Like you can't ask the frontline ER emergency department professionals to kaizen their way out of big systemic problems like that. Yeah, especially when you know some of them are between different entities, right? Nursing center owned by a different entity than a than a uh, hospital, a, a an ambulance service owned by a separate legal entity than the hospital and. Right. And, and some of these balances and imbalances that, you know, again, a, a 25-year-old nurse can't can't fix that problem. They can only highlight the, hey, I can't meet my standard no matter what I've tried. And, you know, you, you, you talked about delegate. I, I like to use the word abdication because, yeah. right. you know, there's, there's often a lean is about frontline worker. We're going to give them ownership of their process and, and, and so to me, that's abdication of responsibility. And that's, that, what, yeah. that's not what lean is. No, that's why I use the word shirk. I mean, it's kind of right. a similar um, idea behind it. Um, that that your role as a leader changes. You certainly aren't expected to have all the answers as a leader. That doesn't work. Right. But neither, neither does the other uh, extreme. And so, you know, I think if you look at the business case for Starbucks making these improvements, a lot of it comes down to things that are a big problem in healthcare of like, you know, employee retention. So this article, uh, you know, from the, the recent one said one in four U.S., I assume this was Starbucks baristas, are quitting their job within 90 days. 
one in four within 90 days, that's up. It used to be one in 10. So the cost of hiring and training and rehiring and retraining and that employee churn, that's that's a big cost to the business. And, and that, that has all, I'm sure, all kinds of spillover effects where if you reduce turnover, you're improving efficiency, you're improving quality, you're improving customer service. There's a lot of, of benefits from you know focusing on customers or focusing on employees, not just customers. Yep, and, and and trying to fix things. So you know, the, it was in the news the other day. Different articles: um, three day strike at 100 Starbucks stores uh, involving a thousand workers. Um, there, there's a lot of, um, and I think you know, it's funny. People say labor unrest. I'm like, well, why you make it sound like a labor problem when really it's just a a company problem. You could right. say it's a labor management problem or a management labor problem. Yep. They're, they're voicing their concerns, and and whether you think it's productive or unproductive doesn't really matter. It's there's concerns mm-hmm. enough to to prompt action, and um, you know, sort of sort of taking this full circle to to the the point in the headline about Howard Schultz and his third turn. You know, y- you never know whether it's for show or not, but I think he's seen in a picture in the article sitting down with baristas listening, right? Yeah, he um, went. To give him credit, it said, you know, he came back in March and April, he went to the quote unquote Gemba. He didn't use that term. But right. yeah, going to the stores to better understand problems and worker desires. Yes. Yeah. Right. So he went out to listen and, you know, whether he hears hears them properly, of course, you know, are, do they all speak with one voice? Of course not. And that's and and that's why it's so important not to abdicate, because it, you've got to sift through the noise You've got to find the gems, the good ideas, the true patterns, the true truth, the, the true reality of what's going on through the noise. If you talk to a thousand people, you're not going to hear one thing a thousand times. And so that's that's the hard part. Mm-hmm. But, you know, yeah, that's the hard part. That's yeah. that, that's why this is hard is you've got to you've got to go listen. You've got to go observe, got to go validate and then. You've got to have enough insight and intuition to sift through all of that noise to find where the real meaningful change can be made. Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of opportunity. You can see it when you go and just observe and watch and be, you know, being be a customer. There's, I'm sure, data that Starbucks is privy to that that we um, aren't able to look at. And I'll give them credit that they're trying to make things better. You know, it said here um, in terms of speed of change, there's another quote in the article, they've told employees the company hopes to have new equipment and designs rolling out in the next three years. So I don't know if that means it starts in the next three years, or clearly it's going to be a process to go through thousands and thousands of stores. Uh, it's more than 10,000 stores, I believe. Yeah, it's got to be. It's a, um, it's a long time to wait if you're if you're frustrated. So, but sometimes just, you know, just, you know, we can all put up with a little, a little pain and suffering, a little inconvenience, whatever you want to call it. If we know, if we have confidence that things are going to get better. And so, um, you know, whether it's this tour, whether it's communication of the strategies, and of course it's the speed of and, and effectiveness of those strategies, if they'll give people enough confidence, the, the baristas in particular, uh, that they that they do want to stick around and and uh, you know wait for them wait for the improvements to come around. Yeah. 
I mean, I think the last thing I would have to say about all this is, I mean, I do hope Starbucks figures out these challenges. I want the people work. I, I am not a daily Starbucks customer, but at least a couple of times a week. And I want the people working there uh, to be happy beyond pay and benefits and Starbucks pays for online education. And there's a lot of you know progressive things that Starbucks has done and they still right. have employees who are frustrated and upset. So I hope they're able to get some of these challenges and, and these problems solved or at least made better. Um, so, you know, people enjoy working there. That'll lead to, you know, for what, you know, a be better service, a better experience for me. I don't have any huge customer complaints. Like the waiting times to me don't sound excessive, especially when I, I try to, you know, order ahead and make it, make it line up. You know, it's not gaming the system. I guess it's just trying to use the system um, well. So I, you know, I don't have huge dissatisfaction. I'm not ordering those super complex <laughs> drinks for the most part. I like their nitro cold brew coffee, which is a, uh, you know, they didn't invent that, but that's another product addition to the right. store that requires um, new equipment. It takes up some space. You know, it's a matter of hitting the tap and pouring the drink, but I, I have run into um, many times where they'll say, well, the, you know, the equipment's broken. Like maybe not to the extent of the famous uh, McDonald's soft serve right. ice cream or flurry machine, whatever that is, like notoriously breaking down. I don't right. think it's, it doesn't seem as bad. I don't have perfect data, but you know, there, there are these things that go wrong. I'm sure it causes frustration uh, for customers and employees alike. Yeah. But I, I, I think you can see where the pain is, is that, uh, you know, to your point, it's a lot of employees uh, a lot of them, it's, it's you know, for a lot of reasons, good place to work. Um, there's a lot of people that work there that really want to like working there, right? They did. They probably will. There's aspects of it that they love and they they want it to work out. So I, I think for certainly for their sake, I think it's uh, uh, it, I, I certainly, you know, I'm not a customer, but I certainly hope they they sort some of these challenges out, um, mm -hmm. uh, whatever it takes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, thank you, Jamie, for kind of talking through this, um, you know, you uh, letting people see a little bit behind the scenes. I had proposed talking about this article a while ago and Jamie, you know, you know I'll give you credit. Fair enough. You're like, well, we don't really know their business. We don't really know their Gemba. Should we really talk about it? But especially me. <laughs> <laughs> well, even especially me. I mean, I, you know, the, the only inside inside I have was like back in the day, back in that day, I did meet somebody who was in the role of a VP of lean thinking at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. He left the company in 2011. Um, there was another person in a central lean role who had moved up, you know, the ranks from, you know, barista to management. You know, I talked to him and I got to go see um, a couple of stores, you know, with them. And at the time they had a, a different development. This is all just kind of occurring to me now um, a different little mini development center where they were working on some process and some equipment issues. So, um, you know, maybe this is phase two for, uh, for Starbucks and, and hopefully they, they get some other things figured out, but I bet in another 10 years, there will be new challenges and new problems. So again, it comes back to this you know, question of capabilities of designing a good process, designing processes that, that work with new products, and then there's capabilities around continuous improvement. I would argue you, you've got to have both. It's not either or. Got to have both. And you've got to go you know where on your Pareto chart, relatively speaking, to be working, 
right? When do we have to go shift the strategy? When do we have to change the the, the, the structure? And when do we just need to improve the process? And making that decision alone, right? Where's our focus need to be on that spectrum is, is, is not an easy one. And if you make it too late, then you can get behind the problems. And that's, that's uh, uh, sometimes a hard spot to get behind, get out from under. Yeah. So you're making me think I'll, I'll make one other comment about visiting David Meyer and Glens Creek distilling. We were talking about what he does there. We were talking about Toyota and he was saying, uh, well, you know, TPS and lean, it's really, it's just, it's really, it's, it's, it's problem solving. And he's running his business. It sounds like as a problem solver, like what yes. is the most pressing need? He used that language, which is Taiichi Ono language that I often quote, right. start from need, focus on your most pressing needs. Is it a revenue problem that he needs to work on? And, and if so, what are the causes? Is it a need to develop new products? Is it a develop to find better distribution? Like there are problems that he knows exists in his facility that are nowhere near the most important problem. He's like, well, that that's going to wait for another day. And he, you know, he said an outsider could come in and point out and say, hey, you've got this clear, obvious problem. Why aren't you working on it? And he was like, you, you don't think I've been thinking about that? Like, you know, right. it's just not the most important problem um, to be solved. And I, I think that was a good reminder from David. That's perfect. And that's why he'll point out, like, you know, if you go visit, say you're not going to see perfect 5S because that's not my most pressing issue. Right. Like mostly like three people share the workspace. They kind of know where stuff is. So it's not it's not a pressing issue. Uh, will they work on it? Sure. Yeah. Is it pressing right now? Not compared to other problems. So that's a great that's a great uh, great wrap up from from this week. Yeah. And then you know maybe in 2023. Now that I, I live just 90 minutes away from his distillery, that either I can do an in-person episode with David. Um, maybe you know we can we can film some video or maybe stretch goal. You and I can be down there with David. We did one in person this year. Do you have a do you have the technical capability for three microphones in the not, same place? Not yet. We'd no. have to upgrade. <laughs> We'd have to upgrade. All right. We'd have to upgrade and probably ask him to turn off his uh you know his 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 mash mash units. So uh, yeah, uh, some of the equipment's in there quite loud. So uh, yeah. we'd have to figure that out. But yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe we could try it. All right. So before we wrap up here, and as as we go into uh, Christmas and end of year holidays, uh, we'll we'll kind of end with a question here. You know, uh, Jamie, are there, are there certain gifts that you like to give that are whiskey related? Yeah, so whiskey gifts are tough because, you know, give whiskey to people. It's like, well, what do they like? What do they have? What do they not like? You don't know. Um, so, uh, you know, glasses can be tough because, you know, they can have a closet full of them and they like their particular kind. So so ones ones that have worked both for me and, and that I give, I do sets of sample pours. That's particularly fun in person. Just, you know, a few different sample pours from the bottles and take a picture of what I poured out and give them a sample set of stuff. They'll probably never, you know, buy off the shelf. That's, that's probably my favorite water droppers for those that, you know, might not have one is, is always a nice, nice fun one. Cause nobody's going to have too many of those. That's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, and then there's some good books. Like I, I got a book actually on Pappy land, I think it's called uh, mm -hmm. as a gift and then read it. And um, so I think, you know, you have to be careful about those and some of them can be, pretty, pretty big and expensive, uh, some of the coffee table ones, but, uh, but I think books work pretty well too. So I think it's, 
you know, stay out of the core whiskey and glass category, but, but there's plenty of, plenty of gifts that you can, you can get. Yeah. And you mentioned books. Um, One book I, I I need to get back to it because it is in print. It's over 400 pages. Um, This book I'll, I'll recommend. It makes a great gift. I've been reading it on Kindle because the text is, uh, is small and my eyes are bad. It's called last call. The Rise and Fall of Prohibition by Daniel Okrent. Hmm. A little bit of trivia. I recognize that name from a long time ago because he is one of the creators of what used to be called Rotisserie League Baseball, which is now referred to as Fantasy Baseball. Right. But um, this this book is fascinating for anybody who's wondering, like, how in the world did the U.S. ever get into prohibition becoming the law of the land through a constitutional amendment? The book, you know, it's really three phases of like what led up to this. Then what happened during Prohibition, maybe four phases, um, what led to the U.S. stopping that experiment and then, you know, things opening back up again uh, to a quote unquote wet country again. So that, that book, you know, if someone's interested in history and not just whiskey, um, Last Call, it's a good book there. But, yeah, you're right. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, it just it sounds interesting. I'll definitely add it to my list. Yeah, it's a good book. And, you know, I mean, usually, I mean, it's sometimes the last thing I really need, but, um, you know, I usually end up with a few bottles of uh, of whiskey as a a Christmas gift. And, you know, it's very, you know, I'm, it's, it's very, uh, what was I going to say, low odds that there's going to be a gifted bottle or open it and say like, oh, I hate that one. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, and, and usually it's something that I've never had before. Um, cause you know, I'm the type, I do like trying new things, but if you were to give a gift to somebody who, who says like, for example, like, man, I love benchmark bonded bourbon. That's all I ever drink. It's probably, you know, it's more likely someone says like, I love wild Turkey. Or, I yep. love knob Creek. And that's all I drink. Well, don't buy them a bottle of something different. No, don't try to change their palate if they have one. So. Yeah. So hopefully you know enough about the person you're gifting, um, the bottle to um, to realize, can you take a flyer or do you need to buy something that's uh, in their wheelhouse? I, I I can't remember who it was. I was talking to somebody who said like they, they buy their dad the same bottle every year for his birthday or whatever. And like, okay, that's that's become a tradition. Like nice. if that's what dad drinks, um, then then go for it. But yeah, I, I was just going to answer the, the question a little bit differently. I, I ended up buying um, wine related gifts for people more often. Um, so, you know, wine glasses, similar thing. Like they may have a ton of glasses, but there's there's sometimes new innovations of different shapes of glass or realizing inevitably you're going to break some during the year. Yeah. If you're a wine drinker, um, wine, wine glasses can be um, a good gift. The one thing I wouldn't recommend as a gift, I mean, this is preference. Um, I've tried them. And like, to me, whiskey stones are not a great gift. I don't Agreed. think I don't think whiskey stones are a great product. It sounds good, but mm, but no. Mine are probably still in the bottom of my freezer somewhere. But they they were they were a fad. I think they've they've fallen out of fashion. But yeah, my my wine glass uh, collection actually at this point it's you know you break the good ones, but the souvenir ones you get at a wine tasting never break because they're you know, super <laughs> thick and. Yeah. Not that good. So my my ratio of good to bad wine glasses is probably out of whack at this point. Yeah. Well, Jamie, thanks for doing the episode here. I, I, I went through and I was recounting the year on my blog. This is our sixth episode together for the year. Okay. And you did one uh, recently with Chris. And 
you'll think back to when we started these um, out, I think we were trying to figure out, I think I'd propose monthly. I think you said, well, maybe every two months. Yeah. So, okay, fair. Yeah, there we go. Sometimes we do them monthly. Sometimes there's gaps, but we'll, we'll keep doing these. Uh, we think about 2023 of the, uh, not just the to-do list, but the stop doing list. Like for yeah. me, this podcast is not on the stop doing list. No, it's, it's too much fun. It's, uh, um, as, as we've said, this has always been, uh, you know, we don't we don't worry about being overly scripted. We don't worry about being overly on time in, in terms of when we publish. Right. And uh, like I said, it gives us an excuse to get together and talk shop, which is what we've always loved to do anyway. So, yeah. Uh, so we'll keep pouring, pouring a dram and uh, and talking lean. Yeah. So maybe next time, you know, I think maybe a topic is plant tours. Like yeah. public plant tours and the pros and the cons and what you can or can't get out of it. Maybe that's a topic that we could explore. Sounds like fun. And then when you mentioned Dram, before we go, I, I finished my, uh, my my cocktail. And again, that was called a bourbon flip. A flip, I guess it's just a, a category of drink that has egg in it, I believe. Okay. Why it's called that. But um, as, as, as we continued here, I did pour... Uh, a dram of uh, Port Charlotte heavily peated 10-year scotch. This is from Brooklotti in the Isla region, who I got to visit back in August. That was certainly a highlight of the year. And I think I mentioned Brooklotti uh, before. But I, to me, this this feels like winter because it's, it's heavily peated. It makes me think of a fireplace. I, I tend not to drink these in the, the summertime. Yeah, no, that sounds... Sounds right to me. I, I think heavily peated, definitely not a uh, outdoor summer drink um, yes. <laughs> for sure. So yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Jamie. I hope I hope we'll I know we'll cross paths in person again in 2023. We can do another podcast in person. We'll keep doing them this way through Zoom too. I'm sure. We'll figure that out. Until next time. Merry Christmas and cheers. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy holidays to everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Lean Whiskey. To learn more or find more episodes, visit leanwhiskey.com, spelled either K-E-Y or K-Y. You can also visit leanblog.org slash leanwhiskey or jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. Look for us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. We are very grateful for every rating, review, and follow. Until our next episode, cheers. Cheers.